0: Welcome to the Defender Podcast, a resource to help mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm your host, Herbie Newell. Today is April 15th, 2020, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Today we had the opportunity to sit down with Cliff Sims. Cliff was able to spend 500 days serving the President of the United States in the White House several years ago. He also wrote a book about it called Team of Vipers, My Extraordinary 500 Days in the White House. What a great time to hear from Cliff as he talks about what could be happening in the highest levels of government during this pandemic, as well as just getting a behind the scenes look at life in the White House. Cliff and his wife, Megan, also are in the process of adopting from Columbia, and certainly their adoption has experienced several delays because of COVID-19. And so I'm absolutely sure you're going to enjoy hearing from Cliff Sims as he talks about the White House as well as adoption. But before we hear from Cliff, I wanna remind you that our $500 scholarships has been extended all the way through the end of May. We saw so much good Work being done and, and good response to the five hundred dollar scholarships that we've been able to extend it because of some gifts from some donors who saw the work that was being done and wanted to extend this deadline. And so, if you've thought about international adoption and you want to apply now, there is a five hundred dollar scholarship. And Lord willing, we hope to be able to to provide more opportunities uh, for help for families as we continue to go through this COVID nineteen pandemic. If you're interested in one of these scholarships, you can always apply at lifelinechild.org or specifically you can go to lifelinechild.org backslash scholarship again that's lifelinechild.org backslash scholarship well it's a great privilege today to have cliff sims on the defender podcast and uh, cliff is a great friend but also uh his better half megan is on our team at lifeline And so we've just been grateful to be able to to do life with this family. Cliff uh, recently uh, wrote a book called Team of Vipers, My 500 Extraordinary Days in the Trump White House. Uh, Many folks from our home state of Alabama will know Cliff from his time with the Yellowhammer News, which uh, he founded uh, when he was at the University of Alabama and Uh, Certainly had some extraordinary journeys through uh, the time at Yellowhammer. And then uh, Cliff was able to work not only on the campaign for Donald Trump for president, but was able to actually, as his book says, spend 500 days serving uh, the United States in the White House uh, for the president. Uh, so Cliff, thanks for for joining us. Uh, obviously, one of the most interesting uh, things about you is that you were born in the home of the boll weevil. So uh, <laughs> tell us tell us a little bit more about growing up in Enterprise, and just a little bit more about you.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Really appreciate it, Herbie, and obviously huge supporters of. Uh, of Lifetime long before uh, Megan worked there, which she loves, and long before we entered the adoption process ourselves. So just really believe in the mission and, and appreciate uh, everything that you've done uh, for that just amazing organization leading out for all these years on so uh, caring for vulnerable uh, children and families. So uh, glad to be on with you today. But I, uh, I grew up the son of a Baptist minister, and so we moved around the southeast a good bit when I was, when I was growing up. And um, I think, you know, those who listen to this podcast, you can't see me. I'm I'm five foot nine, but my uh, dream growing up was to play in the NBA, uh, obviously, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and so when I graduated high school, uh, I did get to go play basketball at uh, Delta State University in the Delta of Mississippi and got there and, and honestly just didn't, didn't really uh, enjoy it, didn't love it, wanted to transfer to another school. My family was living in Crestview, Florida in the Panhandle at the time. And, uh, you know, so I decided I wanted to transfer to a junior college and then go back to a four-year school after that. And so um, visited uh, Enterprise, Ozark Community College, now Enterprise State Community College uh, down there in, in Enterprise in the Wiregrass and uh, and liked it. A buddy of mine was playing there and decided I wanted to transfer and actually called my dad uh, to tell him, hey, I'm going to transfer to this Tiny Town, Enterprise, Alabama, Junior College there. And my dad told me, uh, well, that's good, because I've been called to be the executive pastor of Hillcrest Baptist Church in Enterprise, Alabama. And so uh, I always look back to that moment, because it was a point in my life where, frankly, I was not that concerned with what God's plan for my, my life was. But even uh, even in spite of that, God was ordering my steps. Even then, I mean, there's really no other way that that my, I and my family would make that decision to move to Enterprise, Alabama, this random tiny town, completely separate from each other, if God wasn't in the middle of that. And so, uh, went there to Enterprise and uh, had some success on the basketball court, won a state championship there, and um, started thinking about what I was going to do next and where I was going to go next, and started looking at different schools and. Uh, around that same time, my little brother and his friends uh, started a band to lead worship for kids on Wednesday nights at church, and actually asked me to to sing with them because um, I basically my only experience was I had sang in church choir growing up, and uh, and so I agreed to to do that, and you know kind of something new, got bit by the the, the uh, music bug. And of course, Herbie, When once you start a band, you really have no choice at that point but to drop out of school and tour around the country playing music. And that's what we did. <laughs> it's cr- insane to think about now, but uh, we ended up having songs on MTV back when MTV was playing music and uh, songs on the radio and major motion pictures and toured all over the country and uh, did that for several years but uh you know back in about 2009 just got tired of being on the road several hundred days a year and Megan and I uh, wanted to get married and looking what, what what I wanted to do next and uh a friend of mine who was actually my Sunday school teacher had decided to run for the state house of representatives in Alabama and asked if I would come back and help him run his campaign and I'd never done anything in politics before uh and so that cycle was uh, a Big turning point in Alabama. Republicans took over the the legislature for the first time in 136 years. And so, through that process, got to know the governor and speaker of the house. And uh, my Sunday school teacher ended up winning his race, so we were successful there. And um, and and really fell in love with politics. And so realized that there was a void in Alabama for a a news outlet that had a more conservative. Uh, editorial perspective and really just wanted to use the relationships I had built to give a behind the scenes stories of what was really going on in Montgomery. And so launched Yellowhammer uh, as my personal blog to do exactly that and didn't expect it to be a business. And then it just exploded. And uh, by the time that I sold it to go into the white house, you know, we had several million unique visitors a month and 30 radio stations around the state. And um, so, yeah, I got to know Jeff sessions, who was our Senator at the time. And he convinced me to take a leave of absence to join the Trump campaign in uh, 2016. And again, didn't know what would happen with that. Certainly, you know, if I'm being honest, I didn't expect to win, uh, but we did. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought I'd come back, even though we were winning, even though we did win, thought I'd come back and just run Yellowhammer. But um, the president elect asked me to come into the white house and be a special assistant to the president and uh, director of white house message strategy, which is essentially uh, So uh, how does the white house and the entire administration communicate about any issue under the sun? Um, and so that's what I did and did that for a while left there and, uh, wrote a book about it, uh, that spent a few weeks on the New York times bestseller list. And now I'm back in Birmingham here and running a company called telegraph creative, which is a, a creative services, digital marketing, advertising firm. And uh, so we have about 30 team members and, uh, Enjoying being back in Birmingham and, and having a little bit better quality of life than in D.C., I would say.
0: Yeah, certainly it's a different place and a different life in Birmingham than it is D.C. But I know just even from talking to you while you were still working in the White House that that while it certainly is a job that you get up and you do every day, it's 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 a it's a different kind of job because you're in one of the most important offices, if not the most important office in the entire world. Talk about just the the feeling of getting up every day and going to the White House.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And, and I tried to remain com- cognizant of the fact that I'm only going to get to walk through these gates a certain number of times in my life. And so we lived on the east side of the White House about a block away. And so every morning, I would walk in the east wing and I would walk down the East Colonnade uh, there over the underground bunker that was designed for, you know, basically to withstand nuclear <laughs> nuclear blast if it had to. Um, and then I would walk uh, past the family theater there, walk into the main, you know, ground floor of the White House and see all the pictures of the first ladies and walk past the diplomatic reception room there and think about all the people that had, you know, come in there and been received foreign dignitaries, foreign leaders who had come through there and, you know, walk past the president's personal elevator, walk out onto the West colonnade into the Rose garden there. And just think about the fact that, you know, this is where uh, Truman sat here and, and, and thought about, You know, everything that was facing him in World War II and all the decisions that he had to make. And Reagan leaned against this pole right here to take his presidential portrait. And, you know, our first African American president walked down this exact path every single day to go to work. And uh, then I'd walk through these double doors into the West Wing and turn around a corner and I could look straight ahead and see into the Oval Office and look to the right and see my desk. And the only thing separating that. Uh, my desk from the Oval Office is a room called the Roosevelt Room. I mean, it's just bizarre to think about that, like a kid from Alabama having an opportunity to work in a place like that. So it's impossible to walk into that place and not feel a little bit overwhelmed by the sense of history and everything that has happened between those walls. And, you know, every decision that makes it to the president's desk is extraordinarily difficult, challenging. Um, And so, you know, every meeting is... You know, if you're meeting with the president, you're at the top of your field, whether you're the CEO of America's largest corporations or you're a a leader of a foreign nation or whatever. And so just kind of seeing how people at the peak of their profession talk to each other and negotiated and interacted and ran meetings and to be able to learn from that. It's a it's a it's an education unlike anything you could ever get in school.
0: Mm. And, and I know obviously you wrote this book, Team of Vipers, and, and I think for those who haven't read it, the title might be misleading uh, because really the, the book was about your time in the White House and was really more about what you learned about yourself uh, and, and through your own journey in the White House. So what are those things and the biggest lessons and takeaways that you would say, hey, th- these are life lessons I learned from my 500 days in the White House?
1: Yeah, well, Team of Vipers was uh, as a title was a play off of uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's uh, famous book about the Lincoln administration called Team of Rivals, and basically uh, Abraham Lincoln, the extraordinary leader that he was, it tells the story of how he was able to pull together this incredible cabinet to uh, uh, to come together and 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 really work together even though that they they had been political rivals before then and often disagreed on things. And so in the Trump white house, um, that was often not the case. You did have a lot of people who came from different backgrounds and, uh, were rivals before we all got there. But, but one of the things that happened very quickly is we were consumed by this kind of infighting that just never seemed to stop. And, um, Yeah, I, I I was a part of that. So one of the things I wanted to do in the book was if I'm going to tell the story of what it's really like to work in this place, and I'm going to have to be willing to not be the hero of this story, but be honest about uh, my shortcomings and and the things that I wish that I had done different. And so, you know, there are so many lessons that I could point to, but there are a couple that, that really stick out. One, when I left there, um, I realized that the the place that where work fit in my life was not right. That, um, it was, had become all consuming. And, uh, I did some research as I was writing the book. And one of the interesting things that I found was, um, there was a book by a woman who had been a hospice nurse and cared for people basically on their deathbed. And, uh, it was all about the lessons that she learned from watching that play out. And one of the things she found was that no one on their deathbed said that I wish that I could have spent a little bit more time at work, (laughs) uh, that all of them basically regretted not spending more time with their family and with their kids. And, um, and so it really resonated with me that, uh, you know god created work and he has a uh, it it plays a significant role in what his plan is for each of our lives but it should not be all consuming it's not the top priority um and so i think that was one thing is just kind of getting making sure in my life going forward that that work was put in its appropriate place in priority in my life um but i think bigger than that is my greatest regret for my time in the White House was that I was not always a picture of my face. And as we were, you know, I was working in a very difficult work environment, uh, and allowed myself to be consumed by that and uh, take on this kind of ends justifies the means mentality when it came to um, the internal rivalry rivalries and doing whatever it took to make sure to maintain my proximity to power and make sure no one's going to take my position and the things that I did to, to advance selfish causes in there. I regret those things. And, um, and so I do wish that I had been a a better picture of my faith while I was there because it, it is a very dark place, not just the white house, but really DC in general, it's not a place where, um, people of faith are there there are not a lot of people there that share our faith. And so you have an incredible opportunity to be a light in that dark place. But it's it's, you know, I really missed my uh my church small group here and my friends here and that accountability that I had every week. And when I was separated from that and kind of out there on an the island by myself, my faith wasn't strong enough to withstand that. And um, you know, I didn't do anything that was illegal or, you know, anything awful, like particularly awful like that, but just, you know, slowly over time, um, not spending time on the word that I should have and, and my, you know, just not being close to God in that moment where he has an opportunity to use me maybe in a way that he never will again. I don't know. It's the, His plan is his plan. Who knows what's going to happen? But that's certainly a challenge for all of us. And for me personally, going forward in whatever context I found myself in, from a work perspective is making sure that I'm, I'm a picture of my faith to the people that I interact with.
0: Hmm. Well, I know one of the probably first times maybe uh, that we had met face to face outside of just corresponding over email and, and phone calls was shortly after you broke the uh, the story on Alabama's governor and moral failure that was happening in the governor's mansion uh, in the state of Alabama. And and we had two different perspectives of that. You had it as a journalist covering for the people of Alabama. And I had the perspective of of, of having a relationship with the family, uh, the governor and his family. And, you know, one of the things I remember we talked about at that lunch was how here was a man who had been a deacon, who had been a, a just a, a pinnacle of faith back in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, my hometown. But when he got to for the state of Alabama, the most powerful office in the world, that accountability was not around him. Uh, those people who had been holding his arms up uh, to, to help him seek righteousness and to seek holiness and to seek the Lord Jesus, those people weren't there with him anymore. Um, and so that's, that's such an important thing. And, and maybe even with that lesson, how would you encourage people to pray for our elected leaders, especially those who are believers and are getting into these public arenas?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, man, that's a, that's a great question. And obviously the Bible instructs us to pray for people that are in leadership positions. And, um, so we're called to, to do that, but, um, you know, praying for, uh, I think strength and just comfort that only the Holy Spirit could provide in these very difficult moments. Um, but also just for, for people to, um, you know, really what, what, what and Not until I was out of there and really was reflecting on a lot of these things did I really allow uh, the Spirit to start working in my heart and, and prompting me toward these kind of revelations that I had that seemed so elementary. It's like, my gosh, I have these people here that I've put in your life that are, um, uh, that are strong in their faith and they can build you up. Uh, and so just asking and you know, praying for the Spirit to do a work in our leaders' lives, especially those who are uh, people of faith, to, uh, to stir inside of them, to draw them toward other believers who are around them, uh, because they're there. I mean, I I'll say in the White House, that Mike Pence is a great example. What you see with Mike Pence is what you get. I mean, that, he is a—I I saw him in there with the Bible on his lap and, and, and doing— Uh, quiet time and is serious about his faith. Like there are other believers in the White House, but I was so blinded by what I was doing. I wasn't even allowing the spirit to work in me in that way to draw me toward those other believers there because I was so consumed by uh, what I was in the middle of. So I think that that's one thing that's very important. And I think it's also important to pray for our faith leaders in Washington, D.C., you know, like David Platt, you know, God has led David there, uh, to the D.C. area, and every Sunday morning in his church, um, you know, his church is just a few miles away from the CIA. There are uh, dozens of uh, elected leaders, government leaders from the intelligence community, the defense community, at the staff level, U.S. senators. Uh, the vice president comes on a, on a fairly regular basis there uh, to McLean. The president himself, has come to McLean at, at, at uh, one point on that Sunday where David famously <laughs> uh, or infamously, depending on your perspective, uh, prayed for uh, the president on the stage there. So I think those you know, people that God has led to in the ministry there to the D.C. area have uh, a unique audience uh, because of who their congregations are made up of. So I think spending time praying for them that they would be bold because we saw what happened with David, and those of us who know David personally know his heart, and think that so much of the controversy surrounding that is ridiculous, but it takes a lot of courage and a lot of wisdom to be able to leave a congregation uh, and and um, and speak uh, and hold truth to, go- to the gospel in that context uh, with the people that you're talking to there, and so they even have unique challenges. So. Uh, Spending time not just praying for our leaders in government, but also our faith leaders who have been called to that area, I think, is something that's really, really important. Amen.
0: Well, I know for many of us, we're looking on right now and, and praying for our president and for our vice president and for those leaders on the COVID-19 task force as they lead our nation through what is a not just a health crisis, but an economic crisis. So for many of us who have never had the inside look that, that you've had, and, and certainly I know you don't know what all's playing out, but, but from your 500 days inside the White House, if you had to give us a glimpse onto what's happening right now today in the White House, what's happening? What, what, what would you say are your best guesses to what's going on in the White House?
1: Yeah, so um, anytime that there is a crisis like this, I think that people who are outside have never seen it uh, the way it is internally, that you assume that people in there have access to some insight or information that the average person does not. And and there is to some degree that they do. They have access to I mean the president can can get on the phone with any expert he wants in the world at any moment. Um and you know they've certainly assembled a team of, of really um really smart, really competent capable people um to tackle this this issue. But I think something that, that was really eye opening for me when I got there is um often the information that we are working with especially in a moment of crisis is uh not any different that you know the government is not all knowing and all seeing and that's a good thing i mean we don't want to sacrifice our civil liberties uh but so often the updates that we would get on an on- ongoing basis from uh you know the situation room i'd be sitting at my desk and i would get an email from the the situation room and about whatever crisis uh is popping up in any part of the world and a lot of the information that, that we'd be consuming was from uh, what they would call open source intelligence, which is basically things that are available to anybody, whether they're news reports or tweets or whatever it may be, whatever information they can grab at the time. Um, and so, you know, with, with this pandemic, so much of what they are doing in there is trying to cobble together uh, the best most vetted information that they possibly can to put it in front of the president to make a decision and it's often not entirely clear what is the best information i mean we have seen the models the projections of how many people will be infected or die from this pandemic change dramatically uh even in the last couple of days i mean there were times where they were talking about a million plus americans dying from this and that same model is now shifted to say that probably about 60,000 Americans are gonna die from this. And these are very smart people. This isn't just you know some guy like me on the internet trying to come up with a model on this thing. These are people that do this. This is their life's work to try to project these type create these type of, of models. So I say all that to say, you're spending a lot of time there in the White House trying to sift through information and package it up in a way in which the president can hear arguments uh, on multiple sides of an issue. And so on this one, I think the main tension is between the health impact of this and the economic impact of this. And so the president is looking at health data, which is uh, you know, how uh, stretched are our health systems right now, how many people have we confirmed to be infected, how many people have died from this, how is the curve that they keep talking about, trying to flatten the curve, have we flattened the curve? What's it looking like? And, and, and the modeling projections that go along with this. And on the other side, he's hearing from his economic advisors saying, uh, this is the cost in jobs and GDP and the stock market and wages and you name it, every day that goes by that the economy is not coming back online. And so that's a very tough uh, needle to thread between those two. And you've heard the president say several times, you know, the, the solution or the cure cannot be worse than the problem or the disease. Uh, and what he's saying is there are real impacts on people's lives from the economic side of this, including um, people will die uh, because if they do not have money, access to food and shelter and resources and things like that. So there's so I mean, this is just one example of, how complex and difficult the problems the president faces are. And so at the White House at the staff level, you're trying to give him the best information you can to make those decisions.
0: Mm. Well, that's great. And I think that gives us a perspective, but also so many ways that we can be praying for those leaders because certainly those are, are ginormous decisions, but we also have hope as believers knowing that the word tells us uh, that the, the heart of the King, the heart of the ruler is like a stream of water in the hand of our God. So, you know, just continuing a bit with your story, Cliff, you know, you spent those 500 days and, and now, as you said, you're, you're back in Birmingham. Uh, I know you love what you're doing at Telegraph Creative. You're the CEO and it's a, it's a digital marketing agency in, in ways. It's, it's somewhat back to the future with what you did at Yellowhammer from a creative standpoint. But, but what was it initially like returning to the business world in Birmingham, Alabama, after having the access to the White House that you had for so many days?
1: Well, it's, it's, um, it, it's hard, to be honest. I mean, it's, uh, it is tough not to get addicted to that adrenaline rush you feel when every piece of work you touch is plays out on national TV and for the world to see. And so it's, it's hard to, to come back and find purpose in what at first blush can feel like, uh, quote unquote, not as important of work. And, uh, I think that the, the thing that I really have, have learned through that is, um, as, as believers, our entire the, the purpose for our existence is to to know God and to make God known in whatever context that we are in, um, not whatever it is that we just happen to be doing for a vocation uh, and that if we're trying to find fulfillment in, in anything, whether it's our work or anything else uh, outside of um, you know being fulfilled by our relationship with Christ—we're never going to be fulfilled. And so, uh, have, walking into work every day with that perspective—it doesn't matter if you're working at the White House or or, or where or anywhere else—you um, know that mission. That's the most important mission in the world. And so, um, you know, that's what I've tried to bring with me to to my new job and investing in the people that are around me. And I've found great fulfillment in uh, you know the fact that about 30 people uh, rely on me to be able to to provide for their family. And that is a a weighty responsibility and something that I've really, uh, I love the fact that uh, some of my employees have been able to buy their first house because of the job that I was able to create for them. And so being able to pour into these people uh, that, that I get to be around every day at work um, that has been really fulfilling. And so while I do still have a little bit of FOMO, when I look on the TV and see some of the things that are happening and think about, oh, what would I be doing in that moment? Uh, I don't feel the sense of um, uh, separation and, and just, I don't know, almost sadness, perhaps, that I first <laughs> felt when I left, I left the White House. I don't really have that feeling anymore.
0: And so now, and, and we teased it at the beginning, you and Megan are in the process of adopting from Columbia and, and for your family specifically, you know, this pandemic of COVID-19 that we're going through literally will delay the time that you get to go bring your son home. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about what led you both to adopt and, and what that process has been like, especially right now, knowing that there's some uncertainty as to when you could travel.
1: Yeah. So I I think I would put adoption uh, really in the same camp that I used to would have put missions. And this is what I mean by that. When I was growing up, the missionary would come to my church once a year and do a slide presentation. And everyone would say, man, isn't this great? Thank God that that he called this fella to go to some dark (laughs) corner of the earth. Now, he didn't call me to do that. Didn't call me to do that, but thank God he called him to do that. And you know what? I'm going to give him a little money to help him out and that's going to be great. And then, you know, honestly come to church at Brook Hills here in Birmingham and, you know, mission just such a part of the DNA of the church there and start going on short-term trips around the world and getting more involved in realizing that, uh, you know, there, there was, that we're all called basically, uh, to, to, to live life on mission, and it chose, totally changed my perspective. I would say the same thing about adoption, that adoption is one of those things that uh, would felt insurmountable that I, I can't imagine doing that. And again, thank God that God has called somebody to do that, but I, I don't feel like he's called me to do that. Until I get around these adoptive families in Birmingham and realize that they're normal people, and, you know, they have struggles and challenges and they overcome them. And, you know, it's not easy, but it becomes more accessible when you're around people who have done it in the same way that a suddenly becomes more accessible when you see people who are actually are living their life on missions. Um, and so I think that was really a big moment for for us. It was just being around people who had adopted and realizing that they're normal. And, um, and so I think we... I felt like that that was something that we would want to do at some point in our life, uh, in our marriage. And then, you know, Megan, um, has struggled with infertility and, uh, you know, going through that is not easy. Uh, and so, um, I think through that process, uh, really God revealed his, his plan to us, uh, and, and helped us come to this realization that uh, adoption is not second best. It's not what you do because you couldn't have a biological child. Um, and so that was something that I think uh, was kind of a next step for us and, and, and happened when Megan went on a trip uh, to Africa and worked in an orphanage there. And I think if we're being extremely honest, there's always that question in the back of your mind, will I love my adoptive child the way that I would, lo- I would love my biological child? And God used that trip to, I think, really break Megan's heart and bring her to a realization that, yes, absolutely, I will love my adoptive child exactly how I would love my biological child. And so it's been a journey for us through all of those things Um, that led us ultimately to decide that we wanted to enter into the adoption process uh, and we're adopting from Columbia and, and have now gotten to the point where we were very, very close to having our uh, our match kind of finalized and we would be traveling down to, uh, to pick up our little guy and then the coronavirus hit. And so we're kind of on pause. And, you know, I think the big takeaway from all of this is that God's timing is perfect through it all. Um, you know, God knew uh, the journey that we were going to go on long before we were in the middle of it. And so all of those little things that I just walked through about how he changed our hearts through this process have brought us to the point now where uh, as as much as we are ready to have that baby in our arms, that we trust that God has a plan for this. And so if that means we got to wait a couple extra months to go down there or whatever it is, uh, we know that God's in control of this journey.
0: Amen. Well, Cliff, we're so grateful for you for your leadership, both in, in, in our home state here in Alabama, but also on a national level. And and just kind of as we leave, just kind of a silly question, but uh, but a question that I know is really not too silly because we're both huge fans of Alabama Crimson Tide football. Uh, <laughs> but which was a bigger moment, you know, just being in the White House or being in the White House when Nick Saban came to meet the president with the national <laughs> championship football team?
1: Yeah, so I will say, of everything I did in in the White House, I could list a lot of things that were amazing. Flying on Air Force One, uh, you know, uh, running communications for the largest overhaul of the tax code in American history. I mean, go down the list. Writing the remarks for the president to say on the South Lawn of the White House with with the Alabama football team standing behind him, that is the highlight, and I don't think that anything will ever compare to that again.
0: (laughs) Well, like they say, you can take uh, you can take the boy out of Alabama, but you can't take Alabama out of the boy.
1: (laughs) That's right. I'll say the uh, so the first lady's office manages who when you when you invite people to any social event at the White House. That's the first lady's office who manages that. And I think for that event, you know, you would normally get like if you work in the West Wing, maybe you get two or three tickets to invite people to that. I did so much bargaining with people over tickets for that thing and went to the First Lady's office so many times, I think there were 75 people on my guest list for that (laughs) event. It was completely, it was the most redneck, they were like, this idiot from Alabama will not leave us alone. And at some point they were just like, fine, just bring everybody, just do whatever you want to do. So I think I had like 75 people at that (laughs) event.
0: Well, Cliff, like I said, thanks for joining us. What great perspective and, and what great insight on, one, what's going on now, what you've learned, and then also this journey of adoption. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks, Herbie. Thanks for listening to The Defender Podcast. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review The Defender Podcast to make it easier for more people to find. For more information, how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, visit us at lifelinechild.org. If you want to connect with me, please visit herbienewell.com. Follow us at Lifeline on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info@lifelinechild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again next week for the Defender Podcast.